Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Uh, Let's start with an email this week. Uh, and this comes from Jane in Tacoma, and it's a very interesting email. It got me started on our first topic for this week. So first, let me read Jane's email. I am a 60-year-old woman with asthma and indecent health. After a long respiratory infection, six weeks, I developed pneumonia and sepsis. I went to the ER with a fever of 102.5 and had a white blood count of 26, I spent three days in the hospital on IV antibiotics, levofloxacin, and breathing treatments, duoneb. I was released with a white count of 12.5 and five more days of antibiotics, uh, the duomed to use at home, uh, and a 10-day prednisone burst, which I will finish tomorrow. My doctor said to stay home and rest for a week, and the discharge paperwork said exercise as tolerated. At my follow-up appointment... A different provider, my PCP was not available. I was told to rest for a minimum of two more weeks and maybe up to six weeks, having a relapse being the main concern. So how much rest? What is exercise as tolerated? The articles I read online deal with cases of severe sepsis or septic shock. What's the best way to cover from stage one sepsis? Thanks, Jane. P.S. All your information about the microbiome has stayed with me. While recovering, I had lots of lentil soup and vegetable stew, as well as fresh fruit and green juices. I'm happy to report no stomach or digestive problems with the antibiotics. Well, first out of the gate, uh, Jane, I'm glad you're doing so well that you actually are contemplating exercise, because sometimes after pneumonia, people don't feel like it for a very long time. And what you had was a classic secondary bacterial pneumonia, sometimes a viral infection while the immune system is fighting it will, well, basically distract the immune system and bacteria in your upper airway uh, can get in and make their way down into the lungs and manage to take root. And that, again, causes, uh, well, when these bacteria are being killed by your immune system, they're broken up, and we were talking last week about this toll-like receptor. And these uh, these are in your system, in your immune system, and in your blood vessel walls, and they are there to identify broken bits of bacteria. And so when you're killing bacteria life, uh, left and right in your lungs, which is, of course, what the immune system is supposed to do, and your system detects high levels of toll uh, of the ligand, these uh, lipopolysaccharides that are in the cell wall of bacteria only and not in the cell wall of mammals, uh, you start to have a central reaction. starts out with fever, but then as the system becomes uh, more adrenaline-ridden because the system is being stressed, you move into stage one sepsis, which is really there to make us think rather than uh, and to be, have a very low threshold for intervention. So what constitutes stage one sepsis? It's a very minimal criteria, a temperature of greater than 101, a heart rate of greater than 90, and a respiratory rate of greater than 20. And that last one's, that that's panting. And what that means is that you have acid. And the acid is usually coming from bacterial metabolism. So you see, when your blood pH changes, your your lungs get a signal from your brain to breathe harder and blow off that extra acid so that your heart and your brain and all your other cells, which require a very narrow range of pH to work properly, your all of your nerves, not just your brain, uh, well, you can really adjust your pH very rapidly by just panting. In fact, uh, changing the pH can have very quick effects on your cognition. For example, that whole slow, deep breath thing actually makes your blood a little more alkaline, and that causes you to uh, 
be a little more relaxed. It raises your uh, your parasympathetic tone. But getting back to sepsis, you move from stage one, which is not severe, to severe sepsis. And in severe sepsis, you are starting to have uh, additional symptoms. One of them is reduced urination or a change in mental status. Another thing that will happen is that your blood platelets drop, your breathing problems get worse, and you can have an irregular heartbeat and chills and weakness and sometimes lose even lose consciousness. And infections of the kidney in particular are very commonly cause altered mental status in elderly people. And so one of and they don't necessarily have a fever. So one of the things that we are really alert to in geriatric medicine, uh, which at 60 you're not geriatric, but I'm kind of speaking generally, the uh, this is a, a very big deal. If the bacteria are gram negative, which is usually what's infecting your bladder, and also if you have a ruptured appendix or something, that's what gets released into the abdominal cavity. These gram negatives are particularly likely to cause sepsis. Now, the next stage, stage three, is septic shock. And this is when your blood pressure drops. Septic shock means that your capillaries have become uh, leaky. Your blood pressure drops, your capillaries, it it drops because you're not holding your blood in your vasculature. You're literally, your your feeder hose on your drip system has become a soaker hose and you're soaking your peripheral tissues with your vital bodily fluids to, all right, name that movie reference. And uh, if you can send me an email, by the way, uh, you'll get a prize. My voice on your answering machine. How's that? But anyway, uh, capillary leakage, your heart isn't receiving enough blood and enough oxygen. Your brain, so it starts malfunctioning. Your kidneys, with the blood pressure dropped, aren't making urine and aren't getting fed. And kidney failure is one of the more common things that you see in septic shock. Uh, Your brain, of course, at this point, you're delirious. Uh, You have... uh, Maybe uh, fantasies. You maybe are uh, combative, uh, or maybe you're comatose. These are all different ways that the brain goes sideways in the situation of decreased blood flow. And lastly, and also extremely, uh, I was listening to Terry Gross earlier today, and the doctor talked about this. The body wants to feed the brain and the heart. So it will actually shut down the blood flow to the arms and legs in a situation of septic shock. And a late complication of septic shock is actually loss of fingers, toes, maybe even loss of limbs with gangrene happening uh, in a circumstance where someone is kept alive, let's say in the intensive care unit, by giving them tons of fluids Uh, But they may not perfuse their peripheral organs, and they may not perfuse their kidneys, and they can end up in long-term kidney failure. So sepsis has, uh, when it becomes severe, it has a 50% mortality rate in healthy adults. So we we don't want to let people get to sepsis, and that's why we have this acronym that, uh, that we use about time. And what we want to do is watch those vital signs and jump on someone with an antibiotic if they're starting to look even slightly septic or toxic, as we'll often say. And if we're describing a patient, we say they look toxic, that means we're worried that they're going to go septic on us. We put them at a higher level of surveillance, and maybe we just make a guess and start antibiotics. And of course, the depending on the presenting thing, a respiratory infection, the antibiotics they gave you, levofloxacin, were a very good choice. Uh, so I want to now talk about your question about rest and how how much, what does exercise as tolerated mean? Well, you probably are in decent health, so you probably have an indication of what you normally should be able to do. And you should assume that you won't be able to do what you normally could have done before you got sick, and that may last for months or it may last for weeks, and you won't know until you know. So one of the things I ask people to do when is to use an oximeter to monitor their pulse. Or if your watch is a smart watch and you and it works for you, 
then you can monitor your pulse that way. But the point is uh, you want to exercise at a heart rate of around 100 and not push your body above that until that feels really comfortable. And you'll use how often are you breathing and what your oxygen is doing with the oximeter to assess that. Muscle work, where you're just sitting and you are using your muscles, is going to be easier than aerobic work because your lungs have sustained some structural damage from the pneumonia. And it'll be a while before they come back, particularly because pneumonia is an inflammatory disease and you have asthma, which is also an inflammatory disease. So as you come off that prednisone, you may flare up. Hopefully you have a peak expiratory flow meter. And if you don't, then get your doctor to prescribe one. But what you want to do is when you're exercising, if that peak expiratory flow, the amount that you can blow out in one big deep breath and blow, if that's dropping... Uh, then you need to slow down because you're starting to get airway spasm. And with my asthmatics, that's the thing I really worry about with aerobic exercise. Working your muscles, on the other hand, not so aerobic. You can probably do, if you were lifting weights, you can probably do the same uh, whatever you were doing before, but maybe reduce the reps by 25% and reduce the weight initially by 50%. And then you can ramp up quickly depending on how you're how much muscle you lost as a result of being hospitalized. Now, I also want to emphasize low-impact exercise, which is really important because you were on levofloxacin, which in anybody increases the risk of tendon rupture. The antibiotics as a class, uh, this particular class, uh, the floxins do that. So you need, these are, they're called... Um, Oh, I'm blanking on, on the specific class name. It'll probably come to me in a, 10 seconds. But the, uh, the fact that these drugs uh, are likely to cause tendon damage, and by the way, they all end in XIN, so that makes it easier to fi- easy to figure out what they are, uh, means that you can't do any jumping. You can't do, you shouldn't do like hit where you're, you know, sprinting. Because you may blow, you may damage your Achilles tendon. You could even rupture it, or you could rupture shoulder muscles if you're doing too much lifting. So you want to be careful uh, using lower weights if you were a bodybuilder, because you could literally tear a tendon doing the weights that you were previously doing. You want to come back very slowly, because the antibiotics will have affected your microbiome. And I'm really glad that your microbiome wasn't badly impacted by this, but. I want you to be very, very careful uh, with adding inulin, which is a specific kind of fiber that will grow back your bifidobacterium and your lactobacillus. And those are are going to want to shift from that antibiotics because it was a fairly broad spectrum one. So you'll want to use a lot of inulin. And I would take fermented food, either yogurt or sauerkraut every day, I don't know if you're taking probiotics, and actually the fermented food probably works better, but at least be doing something. Since you're not having symptoms, I would probably not give you probiotics. I'd give you fermented foods. You also need to replenish your antioxidants, your E, A, D, C, because you used up a bunch of them fighting this infection. It wouldn't hurt also because you're going to be rebuilding lung tissue to make sure you're getting extra omega-3 fatty acids because that will help you rebuild lung tissue that is less likely to inflame. And you have a golden opportunity here because part of your lungs are a teardown. So as your body rebuilds, you can make sure that it rebuilds with good quality materials and maybe improve the structural stability of your lungs. Uh, It's super important that you get enough lactobacillus rhamnosus because that has been shown to be beneficial in asthma. And what we don't want is we don't want you to get in the cycle of asthma, asthmatic bronchitis, antibiotics, messed up microbiome, less less lactobacillus rhamnosus, more um, asthma, more antibiotics. And you want to step off of that loop right away. I think that covers it. I hope that all my audience has appreciated all that information about sepsis. So moving right along from 
our first caller, I found I had a lovely story set up for this week, and this is about fever, kind of this mysterious thing. We used to say back in, in the day when I was in medical school, we said that the dead bodies of the bacteria release pyrogens, and these pyrogens are sensed by the hypothalamus, and that is the body's thermostat, so it turns up the temperature. We know that fever is actually extremely beneficial for viral infections, and uh, what I was taught was a fever of up to 102 is safe and useful when you're fighting off an infection. But if it's going much above that, you start to interfere with brain functioning. You're getting into hyperthermia. And so that's when you want to break out the acetaminophen. Debatably, de- debatable whether you want to use ibuprofen or, uh, or the, pros- or the uh, non anti-inflammatories as your first-line drug for a number of reasons. I tend to have people who are not heavy drinkers go to the Tylenol for their fever or other forms of acetaminophen. But basically, that drug is more strategic if you you do need to bring down a temperature. But what's going on here with fever? Well, when those tolerite-like receptors sense dead bacteria, and also there are uh, they, this happens with viral infections as well. They release compounds called cytokines into the blood circulation. These are your interleukins, IL-1, IL- IL-6. Those are the big ones. You heard a lot about those during the early days of COVID because that's the cytokines that participate in the cytokine storm. And these molecules are too big to pass into the brain, but the but the surface of the brain, the meninges, have eight very, very dense capillary bed of tiny little blood vessels, and they protect the brain. They screen out harmful substances. And what happens is that there are receptors in these blood vessels, in the endothelial cells, uh, which are the cells that line these capillaries, and they read the cytokines. And they start to produce a hormone-like molecule uh, locally hormonal anyway, called prostaglandin E2. Now, prostaglandin E2 also happens to be the prostaglandin that makes your protective stomach mucus, which is why when you block it, you get more ulcers from the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. But it's also why the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories work so well for fever, because they prevent the production of this prostaglandin E2. Now, the E2 can diffuse across the blood-brain barrier and does, and the hypothalamus reads this increase and levels of prostaglandin E2 as the signal to start the fever reaction. And it turns out that you just need the endothelial cells of the brain uh, to to get a fever, which kind of makes sense. There are uh, similar, uh, there's similar production that happens in the liver and the lungs, when it's inflamed, but it's not critical for fever. And the way they proved that was they made some made up some gene-modified mice, because if you want to test something, you just take it out of a mouse model. And they deleted the ability to uh, make prostaglandin from the specifically the brain endothelial cells of lab mice. It's amazing, and I'll always comment on this. We can just order up a what's called a knockout mouse that's missing a gene. And this has revolutionized our science, and uh, it's given us a way to control variables that we never had before. We had to go searching around for mutant mice. Now we can make our own mutant mice to order. takes about 12 weeks to get your mutant mice if you're a researcher, unless, of course, they've found a way to grow mice faster. But uh, my recollection is it's about 12 weeks, so three months, and uh, here they come uh, to your lab. And then they took these mutant mice and injected them with a bacteria, and they looked to see. So these couldn't make any prostaglandin E2, and indeed, they did not get a fever. In doing these experiments, they also uh, got rid of a myth uh, that we always had, which was that small animals actually, like little animals, have a higher body temperature than humans and large animals. Uh, and what they were using very fine catheters that were uh, basically put into the vi- blood vessels of these mice and then attached to a sensor using telemetry. 
it's a little you know device that transmitted on the surface of the animal connected to these sensors and what they found was that no actually the normal body temperature of small mammals like mice is the same as large mammals at the core it's just that when we try to take the temperature of a small mammal we stress the heck out of it and when you're stressed your temperature goes up so it was, uh, and I mean, I'm trying to imagine, you know, our process for taking the temperature of a mouse. And yeah, it had to be kind of threatening and invasive. So it's no surprise. But it's a good example of how a general truism that is, quote unquote, supported by the science may in fact be a result of the techniques that the science is using. And when you get new techniques, just like, oh, well, uh, the thermometers that uh, everybody was checking their temperature obsessively during COVID's uh, first couple of years. And so guess what? Uh, Our temperature is actually lower than 98.6. It's more like 97.3. It's just that when they did the research that came up with the 98.6, when they had these good, these new handy dandy mercury thermometers back at like the turn of the uh, the 19th century, uh, 1% of the population had tuberculosis and was running a low-grade fever. So when you averaged out the temperature, they got 98.6. But it's always been wrong, and it was an artifact of how we measured and when we measured, which I find just kind of fascinating. So always I have to emphasize the importance of the gut microbiome, and I think it's kind of relevant to our last uh, e- our email person this week because she had these broad spectrum antibiotics for a perfectly appropriate indication. But if she had also had a, a B cell lymphoma, and this is going to be probably true for other types of uh, cancers, the fact of having had those antibiotics would interfere with the cancer chemotherapy. And the gut microbiome modulates the effectiveness of one of our strongest new cancer therapies, which is called uh, CART T-cell immunotherapy. And this is where we uh, essentially take the white blood cells out and retrain them and then put them back in. And this was a large study looking at 172 lymphoma patients who had failed previous rounds of uh, chemotherapy, and 20% of them had had a very broad-spectrum antibiotic, and what they found was that it altered the response to the CART therapy. And once they took those people out of the study... And this is the real important thing of this. It's not that antibiotics are bad, but once they removed that, then they were able to uh, identify previously masked associations that allowed you to predict the effectiveness of CART cell therapy by looking at the microbiome of the individual. In other words, the, the antibiotics messed up the microbiome, and so it had no predictive value any longer. But people who had not received high-risk Uh, sorry, broad-spectrum antibiotics, there was a very strong predictive value to their microbiome. So you could look at their microbiome and the DNA pattern, and you could, or you could say, excuse me, it's an RNA pattern, uh, and then you could say, okay, they have a high probability of successful response without side effects. And the main bacteria that we're talking about are the gut flora, the big ones, the bacterioides, the, and the acromancia and the ruminococcus. And I'm going to emphasize the acromancia because this is a mucus eater. So too high a level of acromancia predisposes you to ulcers. But if you have the right, if you're in the sweet spot with this, you're less likely to get inflamed from all comers. It's an anti-inflammatory uh, agent that is released as part of the metabolism of this particular class of bacteria. So we, we always look at that acromancia level now, uh, as well as the bacterioides and fusobacterium ratios, because that gives us a lot of information about what the person's eating, how it's affecting their microbiome, 
and how likely they are to be inflamed by this CART teeth cell therapy, which is a highly inflammatory therapy. So fascinating stuff, and I hope that you agree. Our next topic is a little bit different. We're going to have a couple of stories about botanical medicine. A little personal story there. I was interested in botanical medicine all the way back before medical school. And it was a it was an, an interest partly because I loved to travel and I'd spent a fair amount of time uh, traveling around uh, Mexico and Central America in general at that point. And I was uh, intrigued with the idea of folk medicine. And also that's about the time that acupuncture was coming into my worldview, and I understood that the barefoot doctors were using these old antique Chinese formulas that were uh, based on a completely different way of thinking about disease, but that had held on through the test of time. My attitude is if something's not effective, it might last for a generation or two, but it's not going to last for 3,000 years unless it works. And so these formulas are arrived at empirically, and they have predictive value in terms of their response, and that's why they persist. It's a kind of cultural uh, evolutionary pressure. You know, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but uh, you aren't going to fool a culture over generations without having some activity. But as we have embraced herbal medicine, we've also run into the usual problems of uh, of industrial and uh, the modern economic system, which is to say the prisoner's dilemma that defection and cheating actually get you paid. Now, all herbs, because they grow, are potentially subject to contamination with microbes, pesticides, environmental toxins. And what we're going to talk about for a minute or two is financially motivated adulteration and which are the most vulnerable herbs. And part of that just has to do with uh, the analytical methods that are uh, used to figure out what's in something. And I mean, we have high performance thin layer chromatography and we can mix that with gas chromatography. We can mix it with uh, looking at uh, ultraviolet and mass spectrometry and various combinations of these very high-tech chemical analytic techniques are used to see if something's got it. Think about it this way, though. Uh, it's labeled as such and such. And first of all, is that what's in it? Is the molecule right? Second of all, is there something else in there you don't want, like lead, and how do you test for that? And that may be a different process entirely. In general, a combination of uh, mass spectrometry and gas chromatography are used, gas chromatography are used, but there are exceptions. Getting back to herbs that you'll have heard of that are the most, the four most, well, five most commonly adulterated or gamed. So you'll want to if you're taking one of these, understand what's going on here. First of all, golden seal, which is valued for its antibacterial properties and is an immune stimulant, and it has a very long history of being adulterated. See, golden seal is difficult to to cultivate, and the wild stalks are being harvested, so we're essentially driving it out of existence. By the way, the first time in recorded history that humans over- uh, harvested and killed a plant was back in ancient Greece with an herb that was a, a effective form of birth control, or at least that's what the textbooks of the time said. Well, that herb no longer exists. It was hunted to extinction. Uh, unethical suppliers will often cut golden seal with other herbs that contain high amounts of berberine, which is one of the active components, uh, and they'll also use other al yellow alkaloids so that it looks like golden seal, and it'll fool the mass spec with the berberine, which is the molecule that we're mainly looking for to validate it. Uh, by the way, something similar happened with protein compounds. Uh, this was easily 10, 10 years ago, but uh, the pro the protein powders that were coming from China were being assayed through a type of analysis 
that was just giving you protein content to validate that it was you know really protein powder. It turns out that melanine, which is used to make uh, plates, pla- the type of uh, plate, uh, it's a sort of plasticky substance that uh, makes un- unbreakable plates, but it's also uh, pretty toxic. And this was being added to proteins, and it got into dog food, and it also got into baby formula in China, which led to uh, some rather serious uh, prosecutions, I think even some uh, executions for the people who had been caught. But the fact that someone would adulterate baby formula just tells you exactly how strong the impulse is to cheat. Uh, Yeah, that one I have a real hard time understanding. But a sapometto is a another one that's been used for prostate hypertrophy, and it also is in the herbal literature shown to have some anti-cancer effects in cell culture, although that's not been established in uh, wild-type humans. But a lot of these are being adulterated with animal fats, which if you're a vegan or a vegetarian is not going to be happy making for you. Another one you'll have heard of is bilberry, and this is found in a lot of herbs for ocular and cardiovascular benefits. It's one of the most highly adulterated herbs. Uh, Unscrupulous uh, suppliers will pull the chemical that we're using for our mass spec, the anthrocyanidins, out of blueberries, cranberries, etc., and combine them with small amounts of actual bilberry and get away with that. And some really unethical ones contain um, just the berry anthrocyanidins with a synthetic amaranth dye and charcoal, and they call that bilberry. And this will actually pass the UV spectrophotometry testing, uh, which is a common validation. And obviously, if it can be gamed, uh, someone will figure out a way to do it. Black cohosh, which is uh, is another one of the more commonly adulterated. This is in short supply, and it's expensive. And so a lot of people will use uh, less expensive, expensive species of Actea, which don't have the same properties, and they'll even sometimes use unrelated species. And uh, so the true... Black cohosh is American black cohosh. It doesn't grow in China. So uh, any certificate of analysis claiming proof of Actea racinosa, which is the one that we're looking for, Actea racemosa, uh, and coming from China is probably not black cohosh. And there were some reports. Usually these adulterations are just fraudulent, but in the case of black cohosh, there was a rash of reports of liver toxicity back in 2002, but subsequently uh, people have looked at the association with true black cohosh and liver disease and found it to be basically weak or non-existent. Uh, on the last one is cordyceps. These are a valuable mushroom. They're used, for example, uh, for immune stimulation in uh, cancer therapy. And they are also subject to a dangerous form of economic adulteration. These these fungi, I didn't know this until reading this article, actually grow on the bodies of a particular type of caterpillar. And the wild harvesters in Asia who harvest it uh, are paid by weight. So they obviously have a incentive to pad out their bundles. And uh, at least in one case, a supplier stuffed the cordyceps with lead solder to increase the weight. And there were uh, two reports con- uh, linking lead poisoning with the use of cordyceps supplements. So what you have to do, basically, is think in terms of how vigilant is the company, how much product are they putting out. And, you know, you want independent testing done by the purveyor. And you want to know how often they do it because they can't touch, they can't test every single batch. But if they're uh, a legitimate high quality uh, provider, uh, some companies that you're familiar about would be Designs for Health, Thorn, Metagenics, uh, they will test frequently. And any supply, and any supplier they catch with adulteration gets shifted away. So 
I'm always recommending to people buy the smaller packages. Be aware that if you buy a big package and it does have an adulterant or it isn't even what you say, you've got a long time where you're not getting any of the good stuff. Plus, these things are plants. They go stale. They lose. Think about spices, for example. That fresh cinnamon uh, is more cinnamony than the stuff that's been sitting in the back of your cupboard for five years. And there's a reason for that, because a lot of these compounds are volatile and they evaporate into the air. They, quote unquote, volatilize and they're gone. They off gas and they they basically exhaust out and that's that. It's gone. So, so important because you won't be able to see the difference. A lot of times when we do research, we do research and we validate every drop of it. So I'm pivoting now to recent research. We'll call this the biobotanical medicine research Roundup. Uh, I always like to talk about these. These are uh, typically published in peer-reviewed journals. Phytomedicine is a big one. Ath- uh, some of the a- atherosclerosis, which is of course a journal that uh, publishes a lot of cardiology stuff. These are not fly-by-night journals, and they have a reputation to maintain. And it's a very hard, high bar to get published. So uh, the first story I want to tell you about is uh, about horsetail act extract. Now, where I live, I have a uh, Equisita horsetail, one of the oldest plants that's still around in and very abundant and very hardy, spreads by underground rhizomes. And despite all of my efforts, I have been completely unable to eradicate it from my land. And so I've learned to live, uh, to go out this time of year and pull up as many of the underground roots as I can so that we can live together in peace and harmony. Uh, but I still have lots of maintenance. It's kind of like, oh, I would say plucking your eyebrows or uh, de- dealing with your beard hair, your mustache hair. You've got to attend to it fairly frequently to keep it neat. This study looked at an extract of equisetum, uh, 900 milligrams today of a dry extract for three months, and they compared it to using 25 milligrams a day of hydrochlorothiazide, which is the most commonly used medical diuretic. And they were treating people with hypertension. They found that daily ingestion of this equisetum extract dropped the blood pressure by an average of 12.6 millimeters of mercury in the systolic and 8.1 in the diastolic. And so this uh, dropped people... from 145 over 96 at the beginning of the study to 134 over 84.5 at the end of the study. And this was head-to-head with the hydrochlorothiazide. They both worked about the same amount. And I just want to say, this, is, this, has, this grows all over the Northern Hemisphere, and it's found to a lesser degree in the Northern hem- Hemisphere. It's been used in herbal medicine forever, it also it has other properties and it's calming and can be used as a treatment for skin disorders it's an anti-irritant but it's also a good diuretic chamomile is another excellent uh, diuretic and when when my women complain of menstrual bloat i just tell them to drink a strong cup of about 4 cups of chamomile tea or just make a pot of strong chamomile tea and it's good on ice it's good hot and you will get rid of that bloat, and it's a safer strategy than using a drug because you're less likely to overshoot. Another thing that lowers blood pressure is a compound found in the the tomatoes called lycopene, and uh, just 15 milligrams a day, which is a very small amount, that's basically kind of like drug-level dosing, will reduce blood pressure, the systolic, by about 3 milligrams. by about three millimeters, so a substantial but not massive amount, but uh, certainly something that eating more tomatoes, cooked tomatoes have the higher levels of extractable lycopene, by the way. So that's worth knowing. And uh, let's talk for a moment about uh, rosemary and something in rosemary called carnosic acid. It's a phytochemical, and lots of plants make it, but rosemary makes uh, a lot of it. It actually can block the adherence of spike proteins to the ACE2 receptors. I wouldn't use it in place of a vaccine, 
but it also has direct anti-inflammatory effects because when it pops onto those ACE2 receptors, it stimulates an in, an anti-inflammatory uh, response. So you calm inflammation and reduce tissue damage from whatever source. It also reduces tumor necrosis factor, minimizes the production of the nitric oxide that causes the sepsis. So this is a compound that we might want to do a study looking at sepsis with and just see whether or not using an extract of this, perhaps it could be given uh, as a supplement to IV fluids, might actually be beneficial. And something along these lines, because it's a food, and you, you're, if you can give doses that are found in, uh, let's say, a high consumer of that food, I always feel like, well, what I was saying earlier about if it transfers over across the generations, we evolved on this same planet. If you evolve on the planet with a plant and it isn't something that's actively poisonous, we pretty much know that we can process it, even because if we couldn't, uh, we would have figured that out by now. So it's when we get super concentrated on things and give a, amounts that are over what are consumed by at least somewhere on the planet that you get into trouble. A good example of this is iodine. And I'll often put people on iodine for breast protection because it reduces, it's an anti-growth hormone for breast tissue. And I'll be told, oh, well, I was told by my endocrinologist that if I take iodine, uh, it's going to cause a problem for me and it'll make me more hypothyroid. And yes, if you take 20 or 30 milligrams of iodine every day, it will, it will suppress the thyroid functioning. If you take one or two milligrams of iodine, and that's already 10 times the amount that prevents goiter, uh, you're not going to have an adverse effect on the thyroid in the in the individuals who do that, and you will actually give them a breast protective effect. If someone, if this is particularly true, if the person has no thyroid activity whatsoever, so a person who's maybe had their thyroid removed because of disease, uh, can sort of by definition can't have uh, suppression of the thyroid by iodine, and they could probably take any dose that they wanted to. But I wouldn't recommend that. I usually, three is plenty for the sorts of benefits I'm talking about. One last herbal one, green tea extract reduces uh, ultraviolet-induced skin damage. So green tea extracts are protective against UV exposures. And so we're talking at, we're looking at products uh, containing about 40 to 70% catechins, and uh, in terms of dosing, we'd be looking at maybe 50 milligrams of a green tea extract. This was a uh, meta-analysis that was published in Nutrients in 2022. And you could see improvements in ultraviolet damage. So in other words, ex- not just protection, but reversal of skin damage. Now, I've been taking uh, EGCG, which is a green tea polyphenol for, well, many years with the idea that I want to get the cancer prevention benefits, which are substantial, and get the anti-hypertension benefits, which are also substantial. But uh, possibly without even realizing it, I've been getting some anti-aging benefits from the skin. And as I already mentioned, I'm quite vain. So I'll probably keep taking that green tea For that purpose, now uh, I'll maybe even be more diligent about its use. I do not think that topically it would have the same benefit, but it might reduce redness. And I do remember using green tea compresses on sunburns. And so maybe there is some local effect for that as well. So let's geek out a little bit. Fingerprints. This is from Nature News, uh, dateline February 9th. A recent study in the journal Nature has been looking at fetal development of fingerprints. And of course, fingerprints have whorls, arches, and loops. We all know about them from crime shows. Uh, 
It's produced during fetal development by tiny ridges that form on the uh, fingertips, and then these ridges ridges spread from a from a, a basically a collection, a nest, if you will, of stem cells, and it's producing cells in a phasic manner. So you create, if you were to take a cross section of the skin, you'd see essentially a sine wave. The rates go, the rate of production goes up, the rate of production drops, it goes up, and it goes, it does this in a rhythm. And this rhythm generates waves. And as the waves collide with each other, they inhibit each other and erase the wave that they hit. And that gives the that gives us our fingerprint pattern. This is the same way that a zebra gets stripe and a cheetah gets its spots. Though this study was published uh, in Cell, and very, very prestigious journal, by the way, and there are two proteins, one that stimulates the ridge formation and another that inhibits it, and these produce the waves of ridges. And the key isn't just the molecular elements, it's, it's how they are deployed on the anatomy of hand. Uh, it's something called a Turing reaction diffusion system, which I remember because my husband for a time was a science teacher, and he did this experiment where the the colors of a of stuff in a dish would shift back and forth, and you get these wonderful patterns. Uh, this Turing reaction diffusion system, I'll uh, maybe talk about a little bit. Uh, what they found was that the main protein that makes the ridges is the one that's important in hair follicle uh, ridge uh, production, and that's called WNT. Uh, and then the other one, BMP, inhibits them. And so you get three centers growing fingerprints, the tip of the finger, the center of the finger, and the crease at the base of the, of the first digit of the, you know, the, the tip. Uh, and these three start forming waves, and then which one grows faster and where they hit is how we get our twisty patterns of fingerprinting. And by the way, fingerprints are not just for, uh, <laughs> they're not just for uh, the police force. They're not there pre-adapted to the FBI. They actually provide increased grip and sensitivity to their fingers. And so when you lose your fingerprints, if that ha- has happened to you with burn or other things, there's a substantial loss in your discrimination. And that's because these wedges, these 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 waves that come up, actually tip back and forth when you grab something and they twist and that twisting is enough to stimulate the nerves in a very different way than just direct pressure. You get torque and you get strain and think about, well, just think about how the wind moves grass and how you get those patterns, uh, the series of waves as the wind moves over a grassy field. I love seeing that up at Mount Madonna. And that's the kind of thing that we're talking about, except it's happening when you touch something and the waves that and the waves of grass that are lying down are actually the ridges of your fingertips. So just like gecko's fingerprints uh, let them walk on the ceiling, our fingerprints give us an incredible level of tactile sensitivity, far more than we would ordinary, we would have otherwise, and also probably one of the major evolutionary uh, advantages of humans. I mean, the dog's got the nose, and we got the fingers. Okay, so someone wanted called in and wanted me to repeat the green tea extract that I was using. Okay, that was EGCG, which is epigallocatechin gallate. That's a mouthful. That's the one that they usually give you the 40 to the 70% on. Now, there's other stuff in that extract, but as in our early discussion of how you validate that an herb is an herb, we use a combination of gas chromatography and mass spectrometry to look at the molecule and the molecule that we're looking for and kind of benchmarking the strength of the herb on is that EGCG. And it has very strong anti-inflammatory properties. It's protective for cells. It's anti-cancer. It's, it's one of the best things out there. By the way, if you want to just drink green tea, the dose for cancer prevention that's been established more or less by research where you see the inflection is five cups a day. I have a hard time doing that, so I 
go with the extract. And again, you want probably around, and these doses are ballpark, but around 500 milligrams a day is a, is a strong dose. So if you were getting half of that, that would probably be a pretty good dose of EGCG. And as I think I mentioned, it does lower blood pressure somewhat, and it has uh, profound uh, anti-inflammatory effects on those endothelial cells that are lining the heart, so it reduces plaque formation. So we've got just enough time for us to talk about food dyes and gut bacteria. Uh, Now there's three food dyes in particular, yellow 40, yellow 5, yellow 6, and red 40. And if you look at packaged processed foods, and I've been ranting about over-processed foods for a while, 90% of them will have at least one of these dyes. And so what the researchers did was they injected chicken eggs with two different kinds of food dye nanoparticles, titanium dioxide and silicon dioxide, at levels that a human might typically consume if they were using these dyes. And what they were looking for was uh, whether they saw cellular changes in the offspring. So these were fertile eggs. When the eggs hatched, the chicks had cellular level changes in their blood and in their intestines, which certainly suggest that these dyes could have a similar effect on the human digestive system. So in other words, food coloring can is associated, this is particularly true of red dye number 40, uh, that it's associated with irritable bowel syndrome and Crohn's disease. And we're consuming these on a regular basis. And research has showed that Americans tend to consume about three times more than, than is recommended by the FDA. So we're exceeding what the FDA approved because back when the FDA approved it low these many years, these levels in food were substantially lower because we weren't all living on convenience over processed food. So we need to back off on that. And particularly if you have uh, a history of bowel sim- symptoms or your child, for example, was a C-section. So you, we kind of know they're going to have problems with their microbiome anyway or you have gut problems in irritable bowel, you certainly want to reduce your consumption of these things on general principle. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long, and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.